I think that the the thing that I always look at is does this meet my standards? Does it meet my expectations? Does it uh, ignite my own curiosity? Because I think that that natural curiosity is going to come across in every conversation. This is the What Works Podcast, and I'm your host, Tara McMullen. If you want to build a business that can stand the test of time, you need to figure out what works for you and your small company. That's why every week I talk with real small business owners about what's really working for them. I want to help you fill in all the details of how others do what they do so you can fill in the details that work for you. This week, I'm welcoming back my friend, Srini Rao, the host and founder of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where he's interviewed more than 700 fascinating people. He's also the author of Unmistakable, Why Only is Better Than Best, and he's an avid surfer and snowboarder. Srini's brand new book, An Audience of One, Reclaiming Creativity for Its Own Sake, forms the context for our conversation today. I wanted to find out what works for Srini when it comes to balancing productivity-driven routines and practices with seeing and fulfilling a distinct creative vision and a personal imperative to do work that stands the test of time. We talk about the difference between creating for an audience of many and an audience of one, how he avoids the inevitable comparison trap, his morning writing routine, and how his unique creative vision emerges. As Srini and I talked, I discovered some new personal clarity myself about my own way of working and how I can improve it both productively and creatively. I hope you do too. Now, let's find out what works for Srini Rao. Srini Rao, welcome back to What Works. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Yeah, thank you for having me back. Absolutely. So first off, I want to congratulate you on the new book. Can you tell us how an audience of one came to be? Yeah. So uh, sometime in 2013, I had picked up this habit of writing 1,000 words a day. Uh, Julian Smith, who at that time had one of the most popular blogs on the internet, had worked on the Domino Project with Seth Godin, written a book called The Flinch, and written a New York Times bestselling book, had turned me on to this habit of 1,000 words a day. I figured given the results that he had produced when it came to his writing life, it seemed kind of like a no-brainer to pick up this simple habit. So I started doing it every single day. And in the span of about six months, a lot of things really started to change, some of which you and I talked about last time we spoke. Uh, I ended up self-publishing a book called The Art of Being Unmistakable that landed me on the Glenn Beck Show, ended up becoming a Wall Street Journal bestseller, sold 15,000 copies uh, I think, to be clear, because the book was really cheap, it was like a two ninety nine Kindle book, uh, but it also helped to have such a, a massive uh, media figure actually promoting your book. So the thing that followed up followed that was a article on Medium titled "How Writing One Thousand Words a Day Changed My Life," and that article ended up going viral on Medium. And two years after I wrote that post, uh, an editor at Penguin contacted me about it and said, hey, uh, I'd love to talk to you about a book. And what ended up happening was we talked about the possibility of, of one book, which was based on this thousand word a day article. And it ended up instead turning into a two book deal uh, because they wanted me to take and expand and revise the self-published book and then do another book based on the thousand word a day concept. So we actually didn't revise the self-published book. I ended up writing a whole new book from scratch called Unmistakable White Only is Better Than Best, which you and I talked about last time, I believe, uh, when that book came out. And that was the first book. 
And an audience of one really resulted from that thousand word a day article because uh, of the fact that it was such a, a perfect example of creativity for its own sake. And the reason we decided to go beyond the, the notion of uh, a thousand words a day, because that was originally going to be the title, we didn't want to limit the audience to just writers because of the fact that the habits, the systems, uh, many of the things that you and I will probably talk about uh, in a few minutes, all were relevant to somebody regardless of what whatever their creative craft happened to be. And so we kind of shifted the, the focus to this idea of an audience of one, but from the habits and the systems and the tactical part, we also had to come up with a through line and, and a message had to emerge. And what was really becoming more and more clear as I was writing the book, because often uh, things, you know, don't reveal themselves to you. We didn't have a title until we finished the manuscript, which is really funny. Uh, it was called Creative Practice or Book Two in the Google Doc. <laughs> and what was becoming more and more apparent was that there was great value to expressing creativity, even if that was done solely for your own sake. And the thing that ended up happening was one, this title was suggested, but you know, I'd been writing about this idea pretty much the entire uh, manuscript. We live in a really interesting world in that you can go from idea to execution in a matter of minutes. And because of that, people's behavior tends to be driven by the desire for validation and to seek attention, as opposed to the desire to master a craft, to become good at what you do, to actually enjoy the creative process. Uh, you know, I think you and I are probably close in age, but there was a time in history for somebody who's in their 20s listening to this, this probably sounds absurd, when it used to take thousands of dollars and weeks on end to do something as simple as build a website. Uh, but just because you can go from idea to execution in the shortest amount of time possible and get that idea out into the world, that doesn't necessarily mean that that is how these things should be done. And when you've started to prioritize attention over mastery, uh, we've got a real problem. And, and not only that, I think the, the thing that ends up happening is people end up sucking the joy out of the creative process. Uh, in a world that is incredibly driven by you know validation, fans and followers, vanity metrics, to get back to this place of uh, I'm creating this thing for my own enjoyment, for my own pleasure, uh, is something that we're, we're lacking. We've seen a lot less of that over the last 10 years, and much more of people's desire for creativity is almost entirely driven uh, by this sort of egoic need to be validated by an audience in some form. And so the argument that I am making here is interesting because it's a strange place to be making the argument for, from somebody who has a, a sizable audience to say this. But uh, the, the argument that I'm making is that when you create for an audience of one, when you satisfy your own desires and you maintain your own values and standards, as opposed to you know letting it be driven by the desire to live up to uh, the expectations of other people or your sort of ego-driven need to be validated whether that's in the form of likes and vanity metrics, whatever it is, you're much more likely to create something with emotional resonance, something that's going to have a lasting impact on people. Uh, and what's interesting is throughout history, this has turned out to be true. You know, we opened the book with the stories of Daft Punk and um, uh, many other people, but uh, and David Bowie. And if you look at this, I iconic artists throughout history have actually maintained this sort of artistic integrity where the person that they were trying to satisfy the most uh, was always themselves with their art. And so I think, you know, given the world that we live in, this is really uh, an important message. And that's kind of how it came to be. Mm, okay. I have like 
uh, 15 follow-up questions from that. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're to try and uh, try and remember to pepper them throughout the rest of the conversation to not spend them all right now. Um, but I love this point about the sort of conflict between creating for um, an audience of many and creating for yourself. And I think that... Uh, I want to talk about kind of the productivity habits and the routines that you've developed here in a minute, but I'm curious um, on that level and with that particular conflict in mind, you know, as someone who is creating on a daily basis and who is also aware uh, of the fact that, you know, you've got a sizable audience, what kind of process or what kind of mindset do you have in place to check yourself to make sure or to uh, guard against uh, the idea that you are creating for an audience of many as opposed to creating for its own sake. Does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. Uh, I think that the the thing that I always look at is, does this meet my standards? Does it meet my expectations? Does it uh, ignite my own curiosity? I think a perfect example of, of this is how we choose guests on The Unmistakable Creative. Uh, the thing that I have always prided myself on is the fact that I will choose people based on how um, how interesting I find them. I never will make a decision based on how famous somebody is or how many podcast downloads it might lead to or how many people might listen to it because I think that one, that natural curiosity is going to come across in every conversation. You and I have had conversations before on The Unmistakable Creative. Uh, so I think that that is definitely one place where I, I check myself. If I know that I'm doing something purely for the sake of, of getting attention or trying to tap into something, uh, you know, some sort of hack, uh, I know that it'll be impure. And I, I know this because I learned this very early on. I was really, really early to the world of podcasting. And when we started as a Blogcast FM, the podcast for vloggers, my first thought was we're going to interview all these really well-known people. They're going to tweet our interviews and every interview will go viral. Uh, but that turned out not to be true. We learned that within the first two months. And I started to realize that the people that were going to cause this audience to grow were our listeners. And the one person whose reaction or whose standards I could actually control were my own. The thing is that we put so much emphasis on uh, product and so much less on process. And yet we don't have any control over how people are going to respond to anything that we do. Uh, so that is something that I try to keep in mind throughout this process. Uh, and the funny thing is that I think it is actually, you know, in service to your audience of many when you prioritize pleasing an audience of one, because I think that if you're not excited about your own work, it's a really tall order to expect that anybody else will be. Amen to that. <laughs> Amen to that. Absolutely. I love that, that that you shared that you had this realization that it wasn't going to be your guests that or some, you know, marketing strategy that caused your audience to grow, but it was the listeners themselves. I think that's a huge takeaway and I, my brain is spinning on that right now. Um as a follow-up to that, which is just adding to my additional follow-ups, um, <laughs> I'm curious if you ever find yourself dealing with the kind of comparison trap feelings that come from watching people who have figured out how to game the system. And I can think of podcasters who yeah. have done this. Um, you know, when I look at those people, I get so frustrated because, you know, like you, I have a certain set of expectations. I have a certain vision for every person that we bring on the podcast. For every yes I give to a submission, there is a long drawn out thought process behind that. And I have certain expectations of what I want to get out of that interview and, and why I've said yes. And when I look at 
people who have gamed the system and have much larger audiences than mine, I will completely admit that I get frustrated and angry and I, I can spiral into that comparison trap. Do you deal with that? And if you do, how do you deal with that or how have you avoided dealing with that? Yeah, I think everybody deals with that. Uh, it's virtually impossible not to have that happen in the world that we live in, uh, given the fact that everybody's lives are on display perpetually. I, I think one of the sort of more toxic things that has happened as a byproduct of social media, where the intention initially was to connect us all to each other, what ended up happening, given the way that we've built these products and the way that they've been designed is in addition to connecting each other, what we've done is we've ranked people in terms of social status based on fans and followers and you know numbers. And so inevitably, what that does is it breeds a sort of sense of inferior inferiority. Now, as far as the, you know, the people who've gamed the system and them pissing you off, believe me, I remember when I first started seeing it, it was driving me crazy. But I think the thing that I found was really an antidote to comparison was a long-term view. I, I knew mm. that that kind of thing would not last forever, mainly because you can't hide lousy art behind great marketing for very long. Eventually, it's going to be revealed for what it is. Uh, I always thought to myself, my goal is the craft because I don't want to have created something that's irrelevant uh, three years from now simply because I managed to game the system and, and had a bunch of good hacks. I want my work to be timeless. And I've been really fortunate in that I think you know we've done that quite well because of the fact that most of the interviews on Unmistakable Creative, even your interview, which if we aired that this Friday, which we do every Friday, we do a best of. Tens of thousands of people still listen to those interviews, which means that we've done our job making them timeless. It doesn't matter whether they uh, were relevant in the moment. As you know, as, as far as, as the comparison goes, I think part of it is a deliberate choice not to do certain things like going and constantly looking at rankings and reviews, which you know, I said is a, a recipe for madness, not meaning. The other thing that happens, I think, that people don't realize, and I have to give credit where credit is due for this, uh, one of our, our guests, Sasha Hines, I was talking to her about this process of uh, comparison. And why is it that even when we reach these these goals that we have that, that seem so ambitious and so, so grand, the satisfaction that we get from them doesn't last? And what happens is a process that is known as hedonic adaptation, right? So you have this goal, for example, of becoming a polished author and after and then you get your book deal and now you are in a group of people called published authors. And what happens as a result of that is that your reference group changes mm. before you had the reference group of people who hadn't gotten book deals. So when you did, you were on top of the world because you were now one of the people who had gotten book deals and the people you were comparing yourself to were people who hadn't. Well, now that you've gotten a book deal, your entire reference group changes to people who have gotten book deals and the comparison basis changes. So, okay, among the people who've gotten book deals, there are people who've also sold tens of thousands of copies of their book and become New York Times bestselling authors. So that's your new basis for comparison. So every time you accomplish something, the basis for comparison shifts. And as a result, you find that there is, you know, not this long lasting satisfaction that comes from the accomplishment itself, which is why I think that you know, focusing on the process is so important because that is where you're going to find this sort of sustained sense of satisfaction and, and happiness and uh, joy. Somebody asked me on Instagram the other day, how do you feel uh, when I posted a picture of the book? And my reply was like starting my next book. Uh, I The funny thing is the part of this process that I hate the most is being finished. I would much <laughs> rather be in the middle because when you're in the middle of it, you're deeply absorbed in something that 
captures all of your attention. Uh, and we, we can talk quite a bit about attention because that's, that's a big issue that actually causes all of this. But I think that if I were to give you the antidotes to this feeling of compares to this tendency to compare, it would be one to not seek out mechanisms that result in comparison. So for example, going and looking at where you're ranked in certain things, uh, because the thing is that this is the silly part. It's a bit like looking at your Google Analytics and thinking that looking at your analytics is going to be what causes your traffic to rise. It's mm. doing the work that would cause your traffic to rise, yet people spend way more time looking at the analytics and worrying about that than the work itself. Same thing goes for uh, you know Amazon. You could go and you could learn how to game the system on Amazon and figure out how to you know manipulate the rankings, or you could actually write a really good book. Uh, the second is going to at least lead to some something lasting. And, and not only that, you've developed something valuable in terms of learning how to write a good book. You want something that is going to legitimately be considered good as opposed to, hey, I game the system and managed to get myself up in the rankings. Because it, I'll call it out. Uh, there are certain groups of people who start podcasts where the system is gamed by all of them leaving reviews for each other and artificially inflating the rankings. But what I don't think people realize is that this is a really a myopic way to look at this. You're actually not reaching anybody. You're just reaching inside a bubble of, of you know people who are all exactly the same as you. And I think that it creates this delusional sense uh, of of growth and of reach. Yes, absolutely. Well, and as an incredibly competitive person, I don't like the idea of not looking at things that tell me where I'm ranked. But at the same time, I know that it is best for my psyche and for my creative work to do what you say to do. So yeah, I'm, I'm not saying better. you should ignore it altogether. You know, I think that yeah. measurement and metrics are important, particularly if you're running a business. I'm just saying that, you know, it's it's one of those things that if you're not careful, it can become a recipe for madness. Yes, I think that's a that is a perfect way to phrase that. All right, let's start talking a little bit more about your process then, because I think that this is, um, well, I'm just I'm fascinated by it because you seem to be a, a rare kind of person that operates at the intersection of creativity and productivity, and those are kind of two things that we don't necessarily always associate with each other, right? There's productive people and there are creative people, and rarely do those two qualities kind of combine in the way that you seem to be combining them. You have a, a real knack for churning out, cranking out creative work. And when I say cranking and churning, I don't mean that it's bad. I mean that you are paying attention to the creative process as you are building these routines and, and processes for uh, for productivity as well. Um, let's start with your writing routine because that's what you've, you've talked about here so far the most. Yeah. Um, tell us about what that looks like today. How has it evolved from that thousand word a day habit sure. that you initially started building? Yeah. So I wake up uh, at 6 a.m. most days and you know the joke is basically the only thing that would hinder this routine from happening is sex or surfing. Two reasons, two <laughs> viable reasons to not follow through on the routine. Uh, so I wake up at 6 a.m. I meditate for 10 minutes using the Calm app. Uh, then I go and grab a cup of coffee. I read for anywhere between you know, 45 minutes to an hour, depending on if I'm enjoying what I'm reading. Uh, I aim to you know, read anywhere, yeah, roughly 50 pages but before I start writing because I, I said this somewhere earlier on Twitter. I said, reading without writing is like trying to cook without any ingredients. Uh, it, you would, you, at best, you're, you're going to you know, have a kitchen that's really hot. At worst, you're going to burn the kitchen down. You'll have a bunch of pots and pans with smoke coming out of them. 
And you have to put something in, in that, in, you know, in, the, in, you have to put something in the dish in order for it to cook. And, and so I think that right reading is always a precursor because it inspires so many of my ideas. Almost everything that I've ever written in the last three to four years is the result uh, of something that came about from something that I read. Uh, then I start in a physical notebook. So this is actually important because it's, it's an important part of the routine. I don't read Kindle books. Uh, I don't use screens for the first hour and a half of the day. Uh, I still write in a moleskin notebook by hand. I think that there's something very different about working analog than working digital. I think it causes your mind to slow down quite a bit. Uh, I think you think very differently. You tend to be in this much more sort of contemplative and reflective state. And then after that, uh, what I will do is I will turn on the laptop and I will open up Mac Journal. I usually use a tool like Rescue Time to block distractions. Most of the time I've blocked distractions the night before. Uh, and we can talk a little bit about how to use principles of activation energy to to actually fuel these habits so that they actually don't require willpower. They just happen automatically because it's really environments play a big role in all of our behavior. So I open the laptop. I use Mac Journal, which is a distraction-free writing tool. I write 1,000 to 1,500 words. Um, I actually put on Another thing I, I should mention uh, that I forgot to is that I put on a pair of noise cancellation headphones. I put the same techno track on repeat, and then I go and I leave my I leave my phone out of the room for the first hour and a half of the day. Mm. Uh, I don't want anything that can basically uh, disrupt my my attention. Mainly, a good the, a big part of the reason that I've developed all these habits and systems is largely because I have a short attention span, and I have to work like this. If I didn't, I would get absolutely nothing done. And so uh, the phone is out of the room. I write. And the interesting thing is that it takes anywhere between 30 to 45 minutes. If people ha can tolerate the boredom, tolerate those moments of, of anxiety, the, the temptation to, to give into something distracting, like a, a quick Facebook check or a quick email check, you'll sort of shift from boredom and anxiety into flow. And what's interesting is from that place, you can crank out work at a pace that seems almost superhuman, mainly because of the fact that when people achieve this state of flow, their productivity goes through the roof. Stephen Kotler's research shows that people are 500% more productive in a state of flow. So imagine if you could spend an hour to an hour and a half a day, 500% more productive than you are the rest of the day. Think about how much more you would get out of that hour than you do every other hour of the day. I have said that my first three hours of the day are worth more than the entire rest of the day combined in terms of productivity. So that's that's how it starts. And then, you know, if I have meetings and interviews, I try never to have any meetings with other people before 10 a.m. Nice. Me neither. Um, <laughs> Although we're talking how, at eight. So. Oh, that's true. You're on the West Coast. Yeah. Oh, I'm jealous that you're on the West Coast. I'm sorry that it's eight o'clock. No worries. Um, <laughs> Great businesses and companies aren't the product of one person's hard work, but the result of coming together with colleagues, critics, customers, and collaborators to build something great. We all get help from unlikely sources, and we all owe a special thanks to the people who support us as we build our empires. Whether it's peer support, collaboration, or accountability, our colleagues and friends keep us connected to our missions. Their support enhances our own agency and creativity as founders, doers, and makers. Our critics and collaborators help us to push our perceived limits and create work on a whole new level. Our mentors share their hard-won lessons and give us a leg up on what it'll take to turn vision 
into reality. That's why all this month, Co-Commercial and I are celebrating what happens when small business owners work together. You can follow along and contribute your own stories, experiences, and personal shout outs by following me at Tara underscore McMullen on Instagram and checking out the Let's Work Together hashtag. We'll be amplifying and reposting our favorite contributions all month long. So for your chance to be featured, make sure you're following me at Tara underscore McMullen. Small business owners, let's work together. How often would you say, you know, are you achieving flow on a daily basis in this routine? Or is that something that most of the time you're achieving, some of the time you're achieving, I what's your success I would say rate? 80 to 90% of the time. So there are okay. days when I, I I'm, I'm as human as everybody else. There are days when, so for example, this morning I knew that I had, you know, three interviews. So my temptation was I, you know what, there's, it became an excuse not to follow through. I read this morning and I kind of, you know, scribbled some stuff in my moleskin. Uh, but I checked email right when I turned on the computer. Uh, but I would say probably five out of seven days. Yes, I, I am definitely getting to that. Uh, I think part of it is that I've just learned how to do it. It is it is a completely repeatable and predictable process. And once you understand that, uh, I, I think that it changes you because the, the other thing we're talking about antidotes to comparison, this actually came up yesterday in one of my writing sessions, I, I it became very clear to me that flow was actually one of the most fantastic antidotes to our tendency to compare. Because at that point, you've shifted from being, you know, uh, not present to being completely present. And so much of our tendency to compare is driven by anxiety about the future and worry about the past, all things mm-hmm. which we have very little control over. Whereas when you move into to the state of extreme presence, you get this sort of joy that comes from flow. And as a result, you you kind of wipe out that tendency to compare, you kind of silence the, the critic, critical voice in your head. And it, it's just this, it, it's, I think anybody who's ever experienced it can can describe it uh, as as pure bliss. There's nothing quite like it. And so all of the other things that we you know get caught up in tend to lose their appeal. Gotcha. And just to clarify, you said five out of seven days, which makes me think that you're following this routine seven days out of the week. Is that I true? would I would say so. Yeah, it's very rare. Minus waking up mildly hungover in a strange city, uh, I, I usually follow this routine. Only for example, I was in Jamaica for a wedding uh, a few weeks ago, and most nights we, we were drinking a lot, and so those mornings I didn't follow this routine. Gotcha. Okay, so it's it's not like it's a work week thing. This is an everyday thing. This is very much an everyday thing. Gotcha. Okay. Um, you mentioned something uh, a little a couple minutes back about activation energy yes. and okay. using that to um, not depend on willpower. Can you tell Absolutely. us what that means? Yeah. I don't know what that means. <laughs> so Shawnee Court in his book, uh, The Happiness Advantage, talked about this principle called activation energy, which is the number of steps that are required to follow through on a particular action. So let's take the example of writing 1,000 words a day. Uh, in order to write 1,000 words a day, in order to follow this routine that I just described to you, I have to have a book to read, I have to have a pen to write with, I have to have a notebook to write with, uh, I have to have headphones. Now, just going through those steps um, with each one of those things, I have to. If I if I don't have the book to read the night before, I have to go to the shelf and make a decision about what book I'm going to read. Now. If you know anything about willpower, with every decision you make, your willpower gets depleted. So let's think about this in terms of units just for the sake of simplicity. So now I've you know used one decision unit on choosing my book. So willpower has gone down by one unit. Let's say that we have 10 units of willpower for, for the sake of, of this example. 
let's say that I didn't get my pen to write with. Well, now I have to go to my you know little pen holder and choose the pen to write with. Now we've detracted another point for making decisions. Uh, and then finally, let's say that I you know need to go find a notebook. Well, there's another action that I have to take. Now, all of this stuff basically adds up um, and all the steps that are required are known as activation energy, which is a principle from physics. It's, you know, the number of steps that have to happen for a particular action to take place. So the book, the pen, all that. But the interesting thing is that you can actually reduce the activation energy by basically eliminating those steps. So I have all this stuff set up the night before. So my notebook is on my desk. The book I'm going to read is on my desk. My headphones are on my desk and my pen is on my desk. And what's funny is that it seems so simple that eliminating these steps would would actually have this kind of an impact, but it makes a huge difference psychologically. So now you've preserved your willpower because you're not making any of those decisions. Uh, you also, because of the fact that your behavior is largely the byproduct of environment, are now creating an environment that is conducive to the behavior that you want. You can also apply this to your computer. So here's a, a really simple example. And this I actually was, this is what really caused that the thousand word a day habit to stick. I learned this from Sean Acor in that book. So for example, one of the things that you have to do when you want to write uh, using distraction-free writing software is open up the uh, app Mac Journal. So that might mean I'd have to go through two screens to find the app on my MacBook and click on it. The option of uh, alternative, of course, is to say, you know what, I'm going to open this the night before. So the moment I flip my screen open in the morning, it's the very first thing I see. Just the fact that those steps are gone makes you much more likely to follow through on the habit. And we can apply this to virtually any habit that you want to adopt. I love that. And it totally explains the routine that I've developed around my morning workouts too. Exactly. That's... Be, yeah. I decide what I'm going to wear the night before. I It's either laid out or it's in, it's in my head that I know what I'm going to pull out of the dresser. Um, I save the workout that I'm going to do to my phone, whether it's something I've programmed and it's in my notes or it's an active workout and I have it saved to a particular playlist in active. And I am way more likely to get... I. I think I will do it regardless because I love working out and I love that feeling that I get in the morning, but I'm going to be much more productive. I'm going to get started sooner. I'm going to look forward to it more if I have followed those steps the night before, as opposed to trying to figure out what I'm going to wear in the morning, trying to figure out where which sneakers I'm going to wear, trying to decide what workout I'm going to do that morning. If I've got it figured out ahead of time, it's just, it's a piece of cake. I just do it and I'm, I'm way more productive. So that's incredibly helpful because like you said, I mean, that applies to anything. It's not just a thousand word a day habit. It's it's literally anything. Um, I want to, yeah, I want to talk about how you balance creative vision with um, sort of the, the routines that you've developed. And uh, let me explain what I'm thinking about a little bit more. And, and hopefully this will be interesting for you to talk about um, for you. Um, I'm you seem to have such a distinct creative vision, whether it's for a book or it's for a blog post or it's for an, your Instagram feed or it's for an event that you're putting on. And at the same time, you are so cognizant of the the kind of productivity routines that need to go into your creative practice. And so often I see with people who are as diligent about creative routine or productive routines uh, for producing work, the work that they produce is, I think for lack of a better word, just very commercial, right? It is built for audiences of many as opposed to audiences of one. 
how do you balance maintaining and upholding that creative vision with the the productivity, the kind of the routinized side of the work that you're doing? Yeah. Well, it's a good question. I, I think the the thing that came to my mind, right, as you were saying that is that the vision actually emerges from the practice. Mm. Uh, and this actually has also been proven by research. So Adam Grant, who is another uh, person who's done a great deal of research on creativity, uh, when they looked at people who produce um, high quality creative work, there was one common pattern between all of them. And that was that they produce a large volume of creative work. And so one of the things that I started to realize was that if you produce a large volume of creative work, uh, not all of it has to be good. So that takes a lot of pressure off of, of, you know, everything reflecting this sort of grand vision that you have. And as a result, the more that you create, the more that you have to work with. Uh, I, you know, I always describe my, my writing process as putting together puzzle pieces. And, and the job is basically every day I'm creating puzzle pieces. And then I go back and I put things back together. Uh, Jen Loudon, who had, uh, who's also a really well-known writer, I remember, I think sometime in 2012, I had struggled with the process of writing books or anything lengthier, primarily because I was a blogger. And the thing that she told me that changed everything was so simple. She said, your structure has to be linear, but your process doesn't. And so that was incredibly helpful uh, to, to do that. But the thing that I think allows you to have this vision uh, from the creative practice is the fact that often the seeds for your most resonant public work are actually created in private. Uh, when you're creating this much in volume and you don't have the pressure to share everything, then you basically can be selective. So I think what, what happens is I create a large volume of work, much of which nobody ever sees. The podcast is, is a different story, but when it comes to writing, you know, if I'm writing 7,000 words a week, maybe more out of that, a thousand is going to be viable for public consumption, but add that up over the course of a year, two, three, four years, that's multiple books, hundreds of articles, uh, a, a very prolific body of work. So I, I think that what people who um, often people don't realize that you don't have to share everything that you create just because you're creating a ton of stuff that this is not necessarily that everything that you, you do is intended for commercial purposes or for some sort of outcome. But often when you're doing that, you'll start to uncover the kinds of things that are viable for an audience of many. Uh, and I think for me, I've tended to be very process driven, primarily because I've seen how much more output you can produce when you're process driven. And I, somebody had asked me yesterday about this. And I said, you know, if you look at this, I can say that in the span of three, four years, I think, well, let's say 2015, I got my book deal. So since 2015, I've probably recorded 600 podcast episode, written hundreds of articles and written two books. And that's in addition to uh, a speaking career alongside of that. So I would say for me, more than anything, the vision really comes from the practice. God, that makes complete sense. And I can I can see parts of my own process in that as well. So I'm, I'm getting a lot of personal clarity from this interview. So I hope other people are as well. What do you do with all the stuff that doesn't see the light of day, that doesn't make it to the public eye? Well, most of it is is stored in Moleskine notebooks, uh, you know, in my journaling software. So one thing that I, I think people fail to realize is that just because something doesn't get into the public eye now, it doesn't necessarily mean that it won't later. And I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the things that we had done for 
my previous book was try to figure out what the organizing principle or organizing metaphor was going to be. And we had no idea how we would shape this, that, that, that idea. Sometime three, four years before that, as you know, I'm an avid surfer. I had already started mapping out this notion of a book based on, uh, surfing, like uh, surfing as a metaphor for life and business. And I remember putting it in an outline somewhere in a book. Uh, I'd already been using it as a metaphor for one of my blogs that I had started called the school of life years ago. And after we, you know, signed the contract and all the, all the, the sort of logistics were handled about this book deal, uh, I was driving down of, of all places, the Pacific Coast Highway on my way to Santa Barbara, right by the water when uh, Robin, my, my co-collaborator on this book and, and the writing coach that I work with, called me and said, what do you think about surfing as an organizing principle for this book? And I said, so funny that you asked that because if I could, I could probably go find the moleskin from 10 moleskin notebooks ago where that idea was there. So, so often, uh, it seems like these ideas are useless. We can talk about idea capture because I think that's really important here as well. So I, some of what, you know, we see is, is in mostly notebooks. Some of it is in Evernote. Uh, I also use Airtable to, um, constantly capture ideas for blog posts because it turns out that your brain is a really lousy place to store information. Your brain mm -hmm. is for creating and processing and, and doing all of the, the wonderful things that it's capable of. But storage is, is a really sort of that using your brain to store information is a bit like driving a Ferrari and sticking to suburban neighborhood streets. You're not really getting what you can out of it. That makes a ton of sense. <laughs> I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit more about how you use Airtable to yeah. capture blog post ideas? Absolutely. So Airtable is fascinating in terms of it, its capabilities. It, it's kind of like Google Sheets or Excel on steroids. I, I'm not right. surprised that they've taken off the, the way they have. So we manage everything through there. So I have a list of all upcoming podcast guests, which schedules, which have been recorded, which are, are slated, which what who are the advertisers in each. But I also use it to, to document document uh, idea. So for blog posts, I basically have a editorial calendar. It basically is categorized as idea waiting to be published, needs illustration uh, or needs something else. Or if, if it's just an idea, I'll put it there. And sometimes I'll have an idea, but it's not fully formed. And I, I can come back to that same idea a week or two later or I'll have written about it unexpectedly in a writing session because I planted the seed for it like weeks ago. So I'm keeping a, a steady stream of running ideas. And then I just have a, another column that basically says, what's the status of this idea? Have we published it? Where is it going? Uh, is it just an idea? Is it in progress? So uh, as I said before, I'm constantly creating puzzle pieces. So at any given time, I might have three or four or five different articles in, in progress. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Recently, I just finished a piece, which we haven't published yet, uh, that is going to be titled The Life-Changing Advice of 100 Insanely Interesting People, where I literally went and just somehow racked my brain uh, without even going back to listening to the podcast and wrote down what I've learned from over 100 people. Uh, on the unmistakable creative. And so obviously that's something that, uh, you know, is, is a gargantuan endeavor. And the key to doing something like that is actually breaking up into the smallest manageable parts. So I thought if I do five of these every day for 20 days, by the tw time 20 days is over, I'll have a hundred of these. And a hundred of those is a pretty massive piece of content, uh, especially yeah. because of the fact that every one of them links back to an interview and every one of those people will be mentioned and probably tagged on Medium. Okay. So I love that for lots of different reasons. One, we also run the whole podcast on Airtable. And so we should probably like compare Airtables. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> 
see what we could learn. Um, second, um, you've solved my Evernote problem because that's exactly what I do with my ideas, but in Evernote. And it's a mess after, you know, I don't know, eight years of working yeah. in Evernote. And so I am literally going to transfer everything over to Airtable. This is brilliant. But third and most importantly, um, speaking of like this idea that so many people who have these kind of um, just really productivity driven creative routines are cranking out more commercialized work. When I hear, um, you know, an article with a hundred brilliant pieces of advice in it from a hundred different people, that to me sounds, that's like, that's a commercial smash, right? Yeah. That's going to go viral. You know, it's going to go viral. It has <laughs> right. everything behind it, yeah. but you wouldn't be able to create that or be able to create it quickly, but I don't think be able to create a period had you not been following that aesthetic, that creative vision that you have for doing great work in the first place. And so I think a lot of people want to skip that step yeah. in order to get to the super commercialized, the super viral, the, the super popular work for an audience of many without doing the work that pleases them first or that pleases one client first, right? And so I just, I love that that's where we've ended up with this conversation is like, okay, we've taken all of this um, you know, sort of audience of one stuff that you've done to this point. And this is how then you have, you are going to crank out this incredibly viral piece of content. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think the, the interesting thing is that often when people will do pieces like this, you can kind of tell it, it's funny because uh, one of our, our business partners says, he's like, you pull like the best bait and switch on people because he said, every time you might have a headline that looks clickbaity, he said, they go there and they read it and it turns out to be anything but right. uh, <laughs> it, because, you know, the thing is, this is a piece that's done with a lot of depth. It's not just, hey, here's one clever thing that Danielle Laporte said. It literally for every, I think, thing that I, I you know mentioned, I have like a good paragraph about each of these sections. It's not just the advice, but my own interpretation of the advice, which I think makes it far more valuable uh, than you know, it, it would be easy to say, hey, go. I, I could hire somebody to say, hey, I want you to go to this podcast and pull quotes from 100 of these episodes. That wouldn't really accomplish what I'm trying to do here. What I was going for is something of great depth. Uh, this is something that will take anybody a very long time to read. Uh, it took a long time to create. And so I think that you can do that. But in my mind, I am always looking to create something of depth versus something that simply uh, gets people's attention. Yeah, that's so good. Um, I think we better leave it there. I think that's a great place to leave it. I could talk to you all day, Srini, but um, I just want to thank you again for coming back on the podcast and wish you good luck with uh, the audience of one launch. Thank you. Um, what's next for you? Just give us a give us a taste for the next project you have on your plate. Yeah. So uh, you know, I, I think I'd, I'd mentioned to you before we hit record here that we were suddenly surprised to find that our audience had grown uh, much bigger than we thought. We you know we hadn't signed a new any advertisers any new advertisers for a little while and we got a new advertiser on board and they said hey can you send us uh download statistics from the last few episodes one of our plugins that showed download statistics wasn't updating so we went to the hosting provider's site and the first thought was this has got to be a glitch because it was so <laughs> big that we were just like wow you know i mean it, it like it was one of those sort of hockey stick graphs and you're looking at this thinking we've been trying to get past this number for so long then we thought okay it's got to be a fluke maybe it's just one episode and we looked and it was consistent across uh 10 episodes uh so one of the the things that that happened is I was with my friend Matt Cook. We're uh, doing a live taping of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast in New York City uh, as part of the book launch because I, I the idea of 
you know, getting on stage and talking to a bunch of people about my book didn't sound particularly engaging to me. I thought, you know, I would much rather do the thing that I'm known for, which is to interview somebody on stage. I think people would find that much more engaging. So I'm interviewing uh, my friend Sarah Peck uh, at WeWork in New York City on August 9th. But one of the reasons that we wanted to do a live taping was when I was watching David Letterman, uh, the new show that he has on Netflix, all I could think about was the notion of why couldn't I do that? What's kept me from doing this? Why couldn't we do this in front of a live audience? Um, I wonder if, you know, potentially there's a TV show here. So, you know, I, I was talking with my friend Matt about that and I said, hey, we're going to do a series of live tapings. We're going to try to record a few of them and pitch it as a TV show to Netflix. He said, why don't you ask your listeners uh, to see if somebody could help you make that happen? And we thought, what the hell, let's put it in an episode. There are thousands of people listening. Maybe somebody out there could be the person who helps, who could help us make this happen. So I said, you know, if, if you'd be interested in this or you potentially could help us make this happen, let me know. Uh, and the one person who app emailed me back happened to be an agent in the television department at CAA. Uh, oh my. So we're in very early sort of preliminary conversations about what this could look like because I think the thing that audio is is neat at doing is leaving a lot to the imagination. Uh, but I'm interested in building multi-dimensional profiles of people. I think we've done a pretty good job of that at Unmistakable Creative because of the way we've told stories. But when you are able to mix mediums like video and audio and photography, that expands what you can do in terms of painting a picture of a person so much more. To be able to, for example, start an episode in their hometown or talking to their parents as opposed to telling, having them tell you about their parents, uh, I, I think really kind of stretches what's possible. So that's on the horizon. Uh, I've started a work an, on an outline for a third book. Uh, I had this piece on Medium that went viral titled uh, What We Should Have Learned in School But Never Did, uh, which ended up getting featured in the New York Times. And so I want to start a book about that. That's the book that I think I've, I've wanted to write ever since I started writing. And uh, what was funny is I even had a, a the half-baked Kindle book uh, that I started years ago with that exact title. And I, I dug it up a few weeks ago and I thought, wow, I can't believe that I've had this idea for 10 years. So that is, uh, those are the two big ones. Then of course the podcast, I mean, the podcast is kind of a red and butter. It's what we're known for. And uh, I think to me, making sure that everything we're doing there is of the utmost quality and of the utmost service to, to the people who listen is, is really the biggest priority. Awesome. Well, Srini, again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah. I have loved watching everything you do grow and blossom over the last, I don't know how many years now. It's been a long <laughs> time. <laughs> Um, but I'm just so happy for you thank and you. all of uh, all of your success. So thank you. And uh, we will let everyone know where to find your books awesome. and where to find your podcasts and all of this, the great stuff that you have coming up. Awesome. Thank you so much. Find out more about Srini Rao and the Unmistakable Creative Podcast at unmistakablecreative.com. Find his new book and audience of one on Amazon or at your local bookseller. What Works is brought to you by CoCommercial. Every question you have about your business is a lesson someone else had to learn the hard way. From the isolation of your home office, it could take hours of research, loads of mental bandwidth, and a massive emotional strain to tackle the question or goal you have today. And then there's always the challenge you'll face tomorrow. You're more than capable of figuring things out on your own, but why continue to spend time and energy reinventing the wheel when solutions already exist? What if you could turn other small business owners' hard-won lessons into your custom solution? 
What if instead of putting yourself through the process of experimenting with solutions, making mistakes and losing time and money on the path to your goal, you took what others have learned and applied it to your business in a way only you know how? Co-Commercial helps small business owners work together to turn yesterday's hard-won lessons into today's creative ideas, solutions, and inspiration. When small business owners put their heads together, they act faster, stay more focused, and reclaim their emotional well-being. Our virtual co-working space, peer support network, and collaborative learning experiences help you do just that. The ultimate result? Sweet, sweet relief. Wondering what Co-Commercial is all about? Here's a skinny. Co-Commercial is a virtual co-working space. It's a chance to work out loud, to ask questions, meet new friends, and find new collaborators. Sure, we could call it a forum, but it's so much more than that. It's also a global network of small business owners. It's not just the platform that's important, it's the people. We work hard to build a culture and community where the smartest, savviest, and most connected small business owners want to hang out. Finally, Co-Commercial is collaborative learning experiences. You can pop into roundtable discussions, attend a virtual conference, join an expert Q&A, or attend a working session on a hot new piece of tech. We create programming not just for you, but with you and encourage you to become part of the conversation. To find out more about Co-Commercial and apply for membership, go to cocommercial.co. That's cocommercial.co. That's it for this week's episode of What Works. If you love getting a behind-the-scenes look at how real small business owners are making it work, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy listening. We also appreciate you leaving a review and sharing the podcast with your friends or colleagues. What Works is produced by Rosie Medias and edited by Marty Seafelt. Kristen Runvik prepares our show notes. Our opening music is by The Shrugs, and our ad music is by Marley Carroll. Tune in next week for another look at how small businesses actually work.